bow with me in prayer. God, and now as we look at your word, be our teacher. Show us something that we have never thought about before or apply your word to our life in a way that makes a difference. And not only for information's sake, but may you also be guide and may we walk out your ways. Bless us to that end. In Christ's strong name we pray. Amen. I invite you to be seated. This is the third in a series of messages that we are offering on being all in. Week one, we ended with kind of the phrase that it's not our abilities that show us who we are, but our choices. And last week, we talked about community and connect or die. Today, I want to look at a, an underappreciated, overly neglected parable of Jesus from Luke chapter 13. Just as an aside, some people have asked me, would you ever think off of preaching on like what we're doing with Romans right now so that there'd be teaching in Sunday school classes and with the pastors um, in classes and then you would preach in the sanctuary on that. I, I'd love to do that. This year it, it came too quickly for us to connect that, but next year after we do Romans, we're going to do Luke and after Luke, we're going to do Acts. And next year it makes sense to me that while the Sunday school classes and the pastors are teaching on Luke, what if I preached on the parables of Jesus from Luke? That way there'd be a great intersection and, and connection. Here's a little teaser of that then. If Luke is set up where from chapter 9, verse 51 to chapter 19 through 28, Jesus is moving down from the north in Nazareth and Capernaum down to Jerusalem to die, and he's trying to figure out who really are going to be disciples. This parable about the barren fruit tree could be specifically about Israel. It could be about the religious leaders but is most definitely about those people who are potential followers of Jesus Christ. So listen to this short parable, three verses with that in mind. Then he, Jesus, told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, that's the owner, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, that's the gardener, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it, fertilizer. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And really the Greek is you can cut it down then. Here ends the reading for today. God always blesses the reading and the hearing of God's word. He walked into my office like the barren fig tree from Luke chapter 13. He said he was embarrassed. He said he was ashamed. It finally came out that he was beholden to alcohol and it was ruining his life. He'd drink to get rid of the pain that he was feeling, but then he'd wake up the next day and his problems had not been solved and they were worse off than they were when he started drinking. And so he had guilt and he had depression and he admitted that he was barren. It can happen in a lot of different ways. It's not just for adults. She was in the seventh grade 
trying out for the seventh grade girls basketball team, 75 people trying out for 12 spots. And she wondered, if I don't make it, if I'm caught, am I worthless? She's not worthless, but if she doesn't make the team, she feels like she's worthless. He's in high school. I don't know if it's from his grandparents, the pressure, his parents, the pressure. It's just himself, the pressure to succeed and get good grades. He's never gotten anything below an A minus. He hasn't even sniffed a B plus. But he figures out if he can't get it, he'll flunk, and F means failure, and D means deficient, and I means incomplete. He's in a math class right now, and he doesn't understand one of the most basic concepts for this class, and he's looking around, and everybody else seems like they're getting it. He doesn't want to admit that he doesn't get it, and so he's faking it right now. Because he doesn't want people to know he's an imposter. Or at least he feels right now like he's an imposter. It can happen at work. It just seems like right now it's the same old, same old, over and over and over again. You're, you're not finding the, the new energy, the new creativity the new originality that used to be able to steal yourself up for. It's not happening right now. You feel like you're stuck or you're at that place in your, in your life, I'm feeling it more and more, where your body in more and more places is breaking down and your mind, you can't remember things with the same nimbleness that you used to be able to remember things and you're wondering if others have reduced you to uselessness. And whether you feel yourself that you're useless. The great Southern writer Flannery O'Connor sums it up this way. She, she wrote, have you ever looked deep inside of yourself and have seen what you are not? I mean, this is not the way it's supposed to be with me. I, I feel like I'm just treading water, you say. I'm in this whole, and I'm having a hard time digging myself out. I'm stuck. According to Scripture, we're all in that same boat, that after Adam and Eve fell and sinned, we've all gotten the virus. It's the theological concept of original sin. Things we want to do, we end up not doing. Things we don't want to do, we end up doing. And we find ourselves in situations Maybe not in all of our life and in every area, but in some of it. Sometimes, in some place, we find ourselves fruitless. And according to verse 7 in the parable that Jesus told, in the face of that problem, one of the answers is a rich application of the law, judgment. The owner looks at our situation and says, I've been coming to this fruit tree for three years to try to get some fruit from this fig tree, and there's been nothing in that entire three years, so cut it down. Why is it wasting the soil? It's a harsh word of judgment. 
But that's what Scripture says is our plight, all of us. The, the book of James, the letter of James says, the law judges us mercilessly. If you've broken one part of it, it's as if you've broken the entire thing. And so we find ourselves in our lives making a mistake, committing a sin, not doing something that we should, doing something that we shouldn't. We feel guilt. We repent. We try harder. The cycle repeats itself. Maybe we're successful for a little bit, but then we fail again. We sin again. We confess again. We try harder. Many people think that's what the Christian life is, just trying harder and harder to earn our way to God. Of course, Dan reminded us from Ephesians 2 that we can't climb all the way up to God. And so God, through Christ, has climbed down to us. It's not about what we do. It's about what has been done for us in Christ. And that is actually the the good news in this short parable. That in verse 8, the first part of it, when we're at the end of our rope, when we don't know what else to say, when we've when we've said, for three years, I haven't felt close to you, God. When we've said, for three years, there's a habit that has been kicking my bottom. For three years, for three years, I have been angry, or three years, I've been envious, or three years, I've been jealous, or three years, I've been in debt, or for one year, just after Harvey, (laughs) I've not felt the same. For one year, I've not been back in my house yet, some of you are saying. For one year, I'm back in my house, but now I'm in the upstairs, and every day there's workers that come in and track dirt and muck, and and at the end of every day, I've got to clean up their mess, which is my mess now. For three years, you fill in the blank. For one year, you fill in the blank. There's someone, I think, listening right now, watching downtown at the medical center child has been just diagnosed with a horrendous disease, and they said they're going to be watching church today. They feel, I mean, how do I get out of this fruitlessness situation? And when we're at the end of our ropes, in verse 8, the first part of it, Jesus says, the gardener says, let it alone. The Greek is office auton, A-P-H-E-S-A-U-T-O-N, two words, office auton, let it alone. Let him alone. Let her alone. Let them alone. I know they've made mistakes, but they're created in my image. I know that they're in the mess right now, but I see potential. I know they're in the muck, but I died for people that are in the muck. And a little bit of room is carved out. A little bit of space is created. And what we call that is grace. Grace is an amazing thing. It's a beautiful thing. And theologically, I let the the bag out already, that, that the gardener, the advocate, Jesus is really saying, I am that gardener. If the landowner is the law, I'm the one that says to the law, not so fast. You can't have them yet. They're mine. You can't take them from me yet. Give it some time. And in that space, then there's an opportunity 
for us that are sick to be helped. When we're wounded in our souls or our bodies are not functioning, Jesus says, I'm the great physician. I can help in those situations. If we're wondering how to move from adolescence to high school to young adulthood to middle age to senior adulthood, from being a senior to home to God, Jesus says, I work very closely with the Father who is the holy and loving Father of us all. And where we feel like sin gets the last word, Jesus says, I went to the cross to die for the sins of the world, not just sins in general, general, not just other people's sins, but your particular sins and my particular sins. Grace is amazing. That's why John Newton wrote an entire hymn that said, Amazing Grace. It's what we need. There's a man named Kenyon Scudder. He was a famous, accomplished criminologist. He did a lot of the prison reform in California before he died. And he used to tell a story when he would go around and speak about a friend of his who was on a train. And next to him was a man that was very anxious and very troubled. And he didn't know if he should engage this person in a conversation. But finally, the the young man just said, I'm a convict who was just released from prison and I'm heading on this train right by my hometown where my parents and my brothers and sisters still live. And what I did in prison was so horrendous that when my parents and my siblings wanted to come see me, when they sent me notes, I told them they can't see me and I sent the notes back unread. I'm so embarrassed with what I've done and they're poor but proud that I didn't want them infected by who I am. And so before I was released, I sent them one last letter that gave gave them the last opportunity for them to drop me once and for all. And what I left with them was we have a property that abuts the train tracks and there's an apple tree right by the edge of our property that the train is going to go right by. And I said, if you want me to stop and come home to see if we can work it out, put a white ribbon on that tree. And if you don't, which I'm expecting you not to want to do... Just leave it alone. I'll stay on the train, I'll head west, and I'll just disappear out there forever. And as they were approaching his hometown and the property at the outskirts of town, he got more and more agitated. I mean, he didn't, he said to the the friend of Scudder that it wasn't a big deal, but he was acting as if it was a very big deal. That he wondered if his parents still loved him. He wondered if, they could, if he could come home. And so he stood up in the narrow aisle and he was walking back and forth. And he said, I don't know if I can look. I don't know if I can look. This is too stressful. I'm not sure. And he said to Scudder's friend, could you be on the window and could you look out? I can't do it. And he put himself down next to Scudder and his head in his hands. And he was rocking back and forth as if he was praying. But Scudder's friend didn't know what he was doing. And they passed by the property and Scudder's friend saw the tree and the friend was deathly quiet, the convict, because he knew they'd come to the place. Scudder's friend put his hand on his shoulder and said, it's going to be all right. It's going to be okay. The whole apple tree is filled with right ribbons. That's grace. 
I mean, mercy is us not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. All of sin and fall short of God's glory, Romans says, if you're studying Romans. Chapter 3 will say, and the wages of sin is death. All of us are due death. And yet here's what I get to say as one of the pastors of this congregation. Because the tree of Calvary is completely red with Jesus' blood, you and I can come home. Whatever we've done, it's not bigger than the grace of God through Christ. Whatever you haven't done, it's not bigger than the grace and love of God through Christ. And the first third of this parable is just about the grace of God. Isn't that brilliant? And Jesus puts himself in the role of the gardener. But then there's a second aspect of verse 8, second half of it, where Jesus the gardener says to the owner, the law, God the judge, let me dig around it. And let me put some manure on it. And let me get to the bottom of the cause of this fruitlessness and give me a year. And we're all for grace. But now Jesus the gardener is talking about truth. And we're not sure if we want to hear it. Where do we find truth? Well, we find it in Scripture if we're willing to read all of it. Some of us just read the parts of the Bible that reinforce what we want to hear. If Scripture only celebrates all of who you are and what you do, you're not reading enough of it. Because it will challenge you. It will call you to account. The truth, Jesus is right, will ultimately set us free. At first, it makes us very uncomfortable. When you read about how Scripture talks about itself, one of my most comforting and most troubling passages about that is Hebrews chapter 4. Look at what it says. Indeed, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of my heart, your heart. And before Him, no creature is hidden. All are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. Read enough Scripture and it'll, it'll challenge you to be a different person. It's not just grace. We've got to hear grace. Grace comes first. But once we've heard the grace of God, the only way we become fruitful and no longer barren is if we hear and put into practice truth. I said last week, remember, connect or die, that W.E. Sangster said one of the other ways truth gets to people is if we have people in our lives who we're accountable to or they're accountable to us. W. Sangster said, God can work through all the friends that you have who are friends of mine. 
remind you, do you have friends in your life who you've said you can speak honestly into my life? Has anybody asked you to be able to speak honestly into their life? If you don't have those relationships, you're probably not going to grow. You're probably going to stay barren, probably going to stay fruitless. What does that look like? Remember coming home from college and talking to my dad about what should happen next. I think I was a junior in college and wondering about next steps. And I was a political science and psychology major, which normally means graduate school, you know. My dad was a chemical engineer, and he had said to us, kids, you're on the four-year plan. Anything after that, you're on your own, you know. That's kind of how it was. He said, I'm not sure what to do, and I was spelled out this and that, and I remember my dad saying after I was done, he said, tell me the last 10%. So what are you talking about? He said, I think what you've shared with me is about 90%, but the rest of it, the 10%, I can't help you unless you tell me the last 10%. And I go, I don't know what you're referring to, Dad. I've given you everything. And he just looked at me. Eugene Reynolds Halverson, never too high, never too low. I said, okay, 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 and I told him this, and I told him that, and I, I said, maybe I should have said this, and then about that, and then he goes, okay, now we can deal with that. Once you gave the last 10%. Maybe the best response you can give to someone who loves you and you love them is, tell me the last 10%. And then just wait for them to give you the last 10% which then you can give them some advice, godly advice. Sherry and I, when um, I was in seminary, in between my first and my second year, we were in New Jersey, and there was a camp called Camp Johnsonburg, and it was in western New Jersey, the Garden State, a beautiful glacier-formed lake. We were in a cabin, um, kind of in the woods, looking toward the lake, no kids. It was a beautiful time in our married life, and... Um, I'm going through the summer, and, and most of the kids who came to this camp were middle and upper middle class kids from New Jersey and New York and Connecticut and Massachusetts and um, maybe some from Pennsylvania, but the, the last couple weeks were inner city kids from Trenton and Newark. And in the middle of the summer, um, I was the junior high, senior high program director, Sherry was the nurse, and so I dealt with most of the counselors, and the counselors were not just from the United States. They were from all around the world. We had counselors from England. We had counselors from New Zealand. We had counselors from Australia. And I was having trouble with a counselor from England. He wasn't fulfilling what we said were the expectations. Some of the campers were complaining about him. Some of his other counselors were complaining about him. I tried to talk to him one-on-one -on -one and wasn't seeming to get any headway. And, and so it, it made its way up to the director of the camp named Howard Miller, and so Howard Miller was behind a desk. I was here, and then this guy from England was next to me, and Howard Miller said, Halverson, tell me what's going on. And I said, well, I really appreciate this person, and they have a lot of gifts, and here's where there's a disconnect, and I spelled out what I thought were the problems in this situation. And Howard Miller says, English guy, what's, what's going on? He had a name, but I'm not going to tell you. <clears throat> in case the English guy is listening right now. 
And the English guy goes, you know, I appreciate all, but what he's saying is not the whole picture, and here's what it is from my viewpoint, and I've done nothing wrong, and it's everybody else's fault, and, and I'm doing great, and, and it's this person and that person and that person, and it, it's probably off too, some, some. And I looked at him, and I looked at Miller, the director, and I looked back and forth, and I said, I wonder what a really good leader does at this moment. And he looked at me, the director, and he looked at the English guy, and he said to him, you and I both know that what you've just said is a bunch of bull, and he said the rest of it. I thought, can you say that at a Christian camp? <laughs> and this guy's dad or mom is probably very influential. You're going to get removed as director of this camp. And I'm looking. It's a very pregnant moment. It's a tense moment. And all of a sudden, this British young adult just starts bawling. It had been like a, a scalpel had gone through the ribs and the fat and the muscle right to his heart and called it just the way it was. It was unadulterated truth, and it's exactly what he needed to hear. And he owned what was going on, and he said it's not going to happen again. And the rest of the summer, a third of the summer, the last third, he was a great counselor. And all it took was someone caring about him enough and the camp as a whole to shoot him straight. Grace is great, but we don't bear fruit without truth. And Jesus says it's not even just those two. There's a third ingredient. The end of verse 8 and verse 9, he says, let's give it some time. Grace, truth, and time. Grace without truth and time is not enough. Truth without grace and time is not enough. Grace and truth without time is not good enough. We think everything can be solved if it's big in a weekend. We think there's a silver bullet. Give it time. I don't believe that it says time heals all wounds. I just, I've come to conclude now as a pastor for almost 30 years, I don't think that's true. Time does not heal all wounds without grace and truth. It does with those three. That's a powerful combination. But time alone, let's not kid ourselves. Time alone does not guarantee fruitfulness. Time alone does not heal all wounds. What would this look like? Well, in Springfield, Missouri, Sherry and I owned a house or were buying a house that was outside the city limits. And so you could do things like you could have a burn barrel in the backyard and you could burn leaves and sticks. And I loved on my day off to just go burn stuff <laughs> and try not to burn down the neighborhood. I did set a fence on fire that I was able to put out, but that's another story for another sermon. This particular conversation has to do with our front yard, which was a pretty big front yard in that little neighborhood. But it was just not pretty to look at. Where there was green, it was clover and weeds. 
And where there wasn't green, it was turf and dirt. And Sherry had gently said, I mean, something probably should be done with the front of the house. And so I had gone and purchased those shoes that you can put over your shoes that have spikes on the bottom of them. And I, I walked around our yard, aerating the yard. I got a spreader and I put lime throughout the front yard. Nothing changed. I put a few grass seeds in the places that it was barren and they grew and then they died or they didn't grow and found out that not all grasses grow in southwest Missouri. You got to have a certain kind of bluegrass fescue hybrid mix. I didn't have that. So I got to the point, I mean, Sherry wasn't saying anything. She's gracious about all those things. I was more, you know, a guy is defined by how his front yard looks. And I was not being defined very well by that kind of criterion. And so one day, my day off, it was a, it was a Monday, I believe, at that time, I went and rented a plow. And I plowed up our entire front yard. Sherry's right there. She's nodding her head at, um, I didn't talk to her about this beforehand. I just did it. And as I was doing it, neighbors would drive by and they'd, what are you doing? You know, it was, it was shocking. Um, people would walk by, I'd turn off the, the plow and they'd go, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm having trouble with the front yard. So I just thought I'd go back to scratch and I'm going to put all the clumps in the wheelbarrow and I'm going to go burn those in the back and then I'm going to get the right seed and I'm going to put it in. And so I got a spreader and I put that right hybrid mixed seed in. I had three or four bales of hay. I, I put the hay over the, gra the, gra the ground that uh, had the seed in it so that it, the ground, if it was windy, wouldn't just go away. And then I began watering and waiting. And one week passed and nothing. And people would walk by and go, how's the lawn progressing? Off? And I go, you know, I'm... I think the, about a couple weeks and something's going to be coming in and two weeks, nothing coming in. I mean, I could see people half a block away talking within each other saying, what are we going to do about this crazy guy there and are we going to have to call the county to, you know, do something? Like if you have 500 cars in your front yard or something. I was that guy. 22 days little tiny fragile shoots of green were poking through the dirt and through the straw. And with each day as I watered, more and more were coming up and I removed the hay and it was coming in. And by the middle of October, early November, I was standing at the edge kind of on our driveway and just kind of like this as people would go by. Do you see the lawn? Yeah, it's me. I did that. You can take your shoes off if you want and walk on it. You can lay down and roll in it if you want to. I'll let you do that. Sherry knows another story right after this that's for maybe my sermon next week or the week after. But suffice it to say this, Many things that matter and produce food are not instantaneous. They take time. 
And if you want to no longer be barren, and if you want to be fruitful in the important areas of your life, instead of frustrated and anxious and stressed out, according to Jesus, it's going to take grace and truth and time. Have you put those three things in place in your life and now until you die? It's all available here at MDPC. You are not just your abilities or your abilities are not the things that show who you are. It is your and my choices. Amen. Let's pray. God, every person in this room can think of an area, a situation where they're barren, where they're fruitless, and maybe give them a holy discontent so that they're not comfortable in that state anymore. And help them, if we're as smart as a fig tree, we'll surrender to the process, we'll even invite it. If we're as smart as a fig tree, we'll let the tree physician get to the truth. We won't just look at the symptoms, the fruitlessness. We'll get down to the cause, the roots. And because of friends in the faith and because of Scripture and because of your Spirit, you'll name things that we can address. All to the end, that we might join you in ministry and your kingdom might come and you might get the glory. Amen.